around John 13, Acts chapter 6, and 1 Timothy 3. So if you want to find those other places, that'll, that'll help you. That'll be fine as well. We've been going through this letter and learning that Paul's intention for writing it is specifically to keep the church in order. To keep people on task. To keep the body focused on unity and the bond of love. And as Paul does with all of his letters, he gives prescription as to how we handle every single circumstance. Now I want you to think about that for a second. So you might ask us, what does the Bible teach us about X? Well, there are some topics and subjects that the Bible does not address. <laughs> Many subjects. The Bible is not the, uh, you know, the infinite oracle of all things, biological or scientific or mathematic, etc. Though you could dig and say, yeah, there's, it's touching it. It's touching it. As Brother Mike prayed... We have the word. It is the complete and full revelation of God to us, his people. And so everything that we need, Peter would say, for life and godliness is contained therein. But yet we find so little time in our days, so little effort sometimes in the seasons of our lives to reach into the pages of Scripture and, and, and find what we're looking for. And as James would call us to do, to ask and pray for wisdom, God gives without qualification. And then when we see that wisdom come from His Word, we stand fast therein. We do not say, well, let's try it this way. Or what about this? We, we just have to resolve to rest in the sovereignty of God and His revelation through His Word. And that includes His instruction to His people. The Bible has been an abused text and the source of abuse for people for centuries. There's nothing greater than to be told that God said and then X, Y, Z. And then even worse, the consequences of not listening to what God said that God did not say binds people's conscience. And now it's not even like that hardly anymore. It's the twisting ideologies and the philosophies and the applications and the conditions and the distinctions and all these other things that we do in our own brains. Then we feel justified in them because we gather around people who ditto these things. What we have not coined but what we have now come to know as the echo chamber. And we get extremely excited about the echo chamber because we're here in the holoback. Yay! That's my team. I must be right. Well, beloved, I've seen teams play wrong and lose. Just because there is a group of people who agree with us does not make us right. We all are wrong. Just because history may be on our side, beloved, history is almost always wrong. That's the point. Just because the credentialed might agree with our position. Beloved, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes this fledgling, infantile, idiotic 
congregation who are not only not living in unity, not living in love, but are judgmental and self-righteous and braggarts turn their nose up to people who aren't quite to par, who aren't quite as academically expressive, who aren't doing things quite the way they wanted to be done, but yet all the while, as we see Paul talk in, to the Romans, the very people who make judgment on the ones that they don't like are the very ones who are doing the exact same thing without their even knowing it that they're making judgment for. <laughs> The Word of God teaches us how to handle things. The Word of God gives us the simple instruction. And then you don't have to come back and say, well, what about this? Well, if God's Word hasn't told us the what about this, then we don't, what about this? Because, beloved, if I haven't poured the foundation of my house, who cares where the trusses go? Put the trusses on the dirt. It's not a house. See, that's what we're always doing in America. It's not like this everywhere. It's not like this everywhere in America, but it's a predominant theme in America. In every topic, in every situation, in every discipline, there's always the experts who aren't experts, who have voice, who are influencers. Beloved, just because someone is an influencer doesn't make them right. As a matter of fact, the Word of God would say that those with the greatest influence are usually the ones who are most wicked. Who are leading people down a spiral of destruction. Because when we submit to the scripture. To the revelation of God to the apostles. And do in obedience the commands God makes certain we know are commands in the New Testament. Those who refuse to do them are to be considered unbelievers if they do not submit to the scripture. No matter what they believe about the gospel. Your theology doesn't give you a trump card to disobey Christ. Ever. I want to hit the pulpit. There's just not big enough. There's no room to hit. You know. Doesn't do it. Matter of fact, your theology. Knowing who Christ is. Ought to bring us to a place of love and respect and honor. Think about that for a second. We are called to a higher calling. We are called to a higher purpose. To be a people for His glory, by His grace. And that's not a contradiction to the sovereign gospel of free and, 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 and powerful that we believe. It is married to it. And when we look at the qualifications for overseers, Paul didn't write that to Timothy so that Timothy could opine the poetic nature of the fact that Jesus is the greatest overseer. He wrote it so Timothy could get his butt in gear and know what his job was and do it come hell or high water with joy. And now the deacons, you see? That's what the Bible teaches us. And the failed elders and the failed deacons and the failed women and the failed men and the failed children and the non-submissive and the knuckleheads and everything in between, if they're born again and they fail, 
They will not fall into destruction, but they will fall into despair. They will fall into distraction. They will fall into divorce. They will fall into all sorts of devastation. In John chapter 13, let's go there. Well, no, 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 I didn't read the text for today. Hold on. Deacons, verse 8, chapter 3, 1 Timothy. Deacons, likewise. Likewise. Order. What's going on in Ephesus? Knuckle-headed people who think they know everything, who have made confident assertions about things that they don't know anything about. And they're so confident in their doctrinal positions that they're causing trouble in the church because they're insisting everybody listen to what they have to say. And they're not listening to what the apostles have commanded. Thus, they're not listening to Jesus Christ. Okay? So Paul writes, Timothy, who's young, who's been charged with putting everything in order in Ephesus, who's been equipped by him personally, and yet, most importantly, he's been equipped by the Holy Spirit. So now Paul writes this letter and he says all this stuff's going on and I'm telling you right now what you do, elder, is that you charge these people to be quiet and that's what an elder does. No, 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 we're not teaching this. You stop the error. And then you stop other people from going in and after the person who's got the error because they're just as sinful, wicked, and demonic as the other person who has an error if you continue to press the issue of the error when the elders of the church have told you to shut up. Ta-da! Ra-cha-cha-cha! It's time to go. You see? It's time to go. Folks, we obey the Lord Jesus Christ or we get out of his people's way. And that's what church discipline does for us. When everything's going crazy, Paul says to Timothy, pray. <laughs> pray for these people. Close your mouths. Tell these people to stop. If they don't stop, if they don't stop teaching, and if those people don't stop instigating things, kick them out quick. See, that's my problem. I'm too patient. Because I love them. I've tried to be. We talked about this yesterday in our men's game. I've tried to be continually murderous. It's in my nature. I want to be hateful. I love being the big, bad, tough guy. You know, that's just what it is. Bandolier Bible study. Buddy, I'm telling you, I could lead that. Could you imagine what the sign would look like on the front of the building? Bandolier Bible study. I mean, I could rock some radio commercials off the top of my head right now. You tired of being a sissy man? Come to Bandelier Bibles. That, I mean, you know, every guy driving to work money going, I need the Lord Jesus in my life. I'm going there. I want to be the tough guy. I want to hold grudges. But the Spirit of God won't let me. It's the discipline of praying for people who really ought to be spanked on the courthouse step with a cane. Like our children, you know, maybe you don't have friends in Singapore. And that's what they do. Pop, pop, pop. It's embarrassing. You don't you come in Singapore, you might get spanked. They don't lock you up. They just spank you with your butt out. I mean, that's humiliation. It's not tough. 
What'd you get spanked for? Chewing gum. I mean. When we pray for people, it changes our heart because we know the gospel. We know the gospel. Mercy, grace, peace from God the Father. In and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And beloved, as I'll remind you, what I'm doing this morning is to teach you what the Bible says we ought to be knowing and doing. There's nothing that we are going to know that doesn't result in us having something to do. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing in the New Testament that is taught to the church for us to know that does not result in something for us to do. High Christology, high sovereignty, high election, whatever doctrine we may be looking at, it is not for us to fiddle our brains and go, hmm, I have the truth. No, get up off your butt and work. Get up off your butt and pray. Get up off your butt, keep silent. You see, that's the service of Christ. Who is the absolute model of true submission? Jesus Christ. Who is the only righteous human being that ever walked the face of the earth? Jesus Christ. Who is the only one that satisfies God the Father in all of his obedience? Jesus Christ. So when we are imputed with the credit of his righteousness, we stand before the Father as if we are indeed as perfect as Jesus forever. How can God do that? Because he crushed the perfect man in the place of an imperfect and wicked, rebellious people. So we are inclined to do our own thing. We are inclined to read the Bible in our own way. We're inclined to just be rebellious with an attitude because we know best. But the scripture tells us things to do which counteract to the very culture in which we live and make us look weak, make us look like we're giving up, make us look like we're compromising when we're actually living exactly like Christ has called us to. And for men, I can't speak for you ladies, but or you sisters and all, but, but for the men and the brothers, I know that it offends our masculinity. It offends our masculinity for me to read a little book and be told to just calm down. It offends my masculinity when somebody comes up to me and says, you just need to relax and rest and trust in the Lord. What you talking about, Willis? I mean, you know? What you talking about, Paul? What you talking about, John? What you talking about? See, that word, Titus. What you talking about, Titus? <laughs> Got to have the two syllables. No. That's what we do. And the world looks at us and goes, scaredy cat. There's, there's probably no greater, there are some greater ones in the vileness, but there's probably no greater backhanded attack for a man to be called a coward. Probably for you sisters too. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth because I'm, I'm not you. Jesus was called a coward. Because he spoke not a word in his own defense. Well, he turned over tables. Hoorah. No. We can't do that. Jesus turned over tables in perfect righteousness. Because it was prophesied that he would. 
and before the world began. He knew the hearts of every man that was going to stand there. And the reason that he purposed in their sinful wickedness and caused it to take place is that he would be seen as the one who came with zeal for his father's house when he saw the money changers who were crooks and thieves and made his house a den of thieves. And what was it for? To show that he was the true temple. That no matter how hard man tries, that no matter how wonderfully they keep the temple, no matter how much worship, how much money, how many sacrifices, it's every single day prayers and sacrifices and offerings and incense and burning, year after year after year after year of killing animals and bleeding out their blood and burning the carcasses and eating the meat of, of, of certain types of sacrifices and all this other kind of stuff. It was to point for the continued reality of the greatest obedience that humanity could ever, ever accomplish still deserved to die. Jesus Christ died once for all. Period. That's the end of it. Good news. He died once for all, having sanctified and justified all for whom he died. Now, therefore, we know Jesus came to save sinners, Paul says, of which I'm the greatest of, but now the church must be in order. So pray, keep the peace. Tend to yourselves, and we can go where go. We can go everywhere. We can see that in the Thessalonians. We can see that with the Colossians. We can see that where he talks about the Hebrews. We can see that in Romans chapter twelve and thirteen, and 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 and, and all the other places. Peter is saying the same thing. Do like Jesus did, who entrusted himself to the one who was faithful. He did not speak a word against those who spoke against him. Where it tells the elders of the church and the brothers and the sisters of the church. Because of God's grace and patience to you, when someone offends you, go to them quietly. And when they say that I'm sorry, you accept it. And then you submit to the scripture on how to resolve it. And when it happens again, guess what forgiveness looks like? Well, that's the first time you've done that. Somebody has habitually has a character issue and they always seem to offend you in the same way over a period of years. When you forgive them, when it happens again, it's the first time it's happened. Because if you're driving the force of that reaction uh, and behind it is all the energy of, of every other offense, then it's never been forgiven. And that's a discipline that we have to learn. And that's one of the reasons that the pulpit is so important, that we teach the church how to do that according to the grace of God in the instruction of the Word of God. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued. Not addicted to too much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they, reprove, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, also managing their children and their own households well. 
for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also beautiful, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There are two offices in the church. There's only two areas of leadership in the church. There are two offices that the apostles teach. There's the office of elder. Episcopos, presbyteros, and the office of deacon. Diokonos or doulos. Literal translation, overseer, slave. Now we've already gone through the fact that overseer in the office is also a servant to the church to teach and pray and to guide and to watch out for. And the office of the deacon is distinctly different. Deacon is not a junior elder. Deacon is not elder in training. Deacon is an office of the church that must be. They're not the same role. Scripture gives the instruction, not culture. Deacons and elders have different jobs to perform and different purposes in the church. And quite honestly, when we're lacking one of those, we have a big hole in the church. And I think Grace Truth Church has had a big hole in it. And I think that's why it's been a little bit more difficult in some seasons. Elders oversee the whole body in prayer and teaching, correction, etc., with great patience. The office of oversight, the office of teaching, that's what elders do. Deacons practically minister to the whole body in service and needs. They also motivate the church in that context by displaying the office of service, the office of what I would call pastoral care or the office of love. You really want to get down to the nitty-gritty? The office of deacon serve as the hands and feet of the love of Christ for the church. It is is an area of administration, administering to the needs, administering to the flock, administering to the care of the church. Not doing it all, administering, because the church, the congregation, are to be the servants and the ministers, the elders teach and instruct, and the deacons oversee the management of those needs. To love the church. Why can't one man do it all? Because it's not possible. I can do a lot of stuff. And I can do a lot of stuff fairly well, but I can't do it anymore. Because I'm not doing it well at all, you see. So those of us, when we're, our children are young, for, we have larger families, even the ones without large families. I mean, there's always this fear, what if my spouse dies? Especially us men. And we've got five kids, two in diapers, one nursing. I mean, what if my wife dies? What am I going to do? I can't be mother. I can't be father. At the same time, I can't do it all. can't be all these roles. I can't have all these roles. Beloved, one person can't be all the roles in a family. Now, we pick them up. We do it. But there has to come a time where we have to make the obvious realization of seeing that we have needs. And I believe as pastor... 
as one of your pastors that one of the greatest needs that we've had in the entire church, and we were dealing with this before COVID, and then COVID hit, and everything was on hold. That would have been a new campaign. Everything's on hold. It's all on hold. And now that we've come out of this and now that the Lord has seen fit to allow the body and the culture around us and our community to continue to be together again, we have got to pick up where we left off, but now we're further away than where we were when we stopped. And it's very easy for us to go, oh, the sky is falling. The sky's not falling, it fell. <laughs> and it's landed on top of us. And the whole world, in a metaphorical sense, in a silliness sense. So what we got to do is we got to push that sky up and lay it in the ditch. We'll come back and clean that junk up later. We've got to feed and clothe and bathe and care and love and tend. Put the kids to bed with a Bible story. Sing some songs because we like to have a good time. Because this is in God's sovereignty where we are. So praise Him for that. Praise Him for where we are. Praise Him for who we are. In this text, you might say, well, where, where's the whole idea of deacons? Anyway, we get the idea of, you know, we can go to Ephesians. We can go to all sorts of places. Paul talks about the elders almost in every letter that he writes. But where, where do we get this idea of, of, of deacons? Well, go to Acts chapter 6 real quick. Lord willing, I'm going to try to... Well, I can't get out of John for some reason. My Bible just won't leave it. Every time I drop the page, it opens up to John. Acts chapter 6. This is what was going on in the church. This is, this is real life. Acts is not prescriptive, by the way. The book of Acts is a historical account. So there's no commandments in Acts given to the church. And if there are some things that the church does, we can learn from them... But unless the letters specifically tell us those things that should be done, we don't mimic the book of Acts, okay? We don't mimic David. We don't mimic Joseph. We don't mimic Samson. We don't mimic Paul. We don't mimic John. We don't mimic Peter. We don't mimic Jesus in the sense of his ministry. But we do mimic their attitudes. We submit to and follow and obey the instruction given to us. Chapter 6. Now, in these days, there's a lot there, right? Dr. Luke, he's writing this account to who he calls Theophilus, which means lover of God. When the disciples, and that means the congregation, when the disciples, when the congregation were increasing in number, a complaint, heaven help us, the very first church had complaints, by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. <laughs> All right, now see, here's the explanation here. What was going on? Who are the Hellenists? Who are the Hebrews? Well, Hellenists are Greekified Hebrews. If you don't understand the history of where the Pharisees came from, the Pharisees were born out of the necessity, out of the Maccabee revolt. The Maccabean Revolt, when everything was Hellenized. That means the whole world became Greek culture. 
spoke the Greek language, they wore the Greek clothes, they ate the Greek food, and just as was common amongst purists, uh, you aren't really a Hebrew if you're a Samaritan. Now in Christ, you aren't really a Christian, people of Galatia, if you're not circumcised, because, you know, we know better. We're the authority. We got it down thousands of years. We hold the Torah in our hands and put it in front of our faces. I mean, you know, you never get away from our fallacies, right? No matter what generation or what century we're living in. And so there were some people who were not Hebrew-speaking, who were Jews just the same, who were also Christians. And they felt like that their people weren't getting the right attention because they weren't quite loved the way they should have been loved. See, the complaint in and of itself is sinful, right? Because it's rooted in self interest. Of course, they probably said, well, you know, Jesus told us to love, and um, we're not doing that. They're not doing that. They're not loving us like Jesus told us to love. But Jesus told you to shut up and turn the other cheek, not make a mess out of it. But either way, it was a legitimate need. It was a legitimate concern. So we listen to the concerns, but we answer them according to Scripture. And so here, the elders of the church... We're inundated. Wait a minute. God has commanded me to pray and to teach the gospel and to teach everybody. Now I'm teaching you guys, you need to manage yourselves. You need to stop fussing. You need to let these people, hey, line up. I don't care. Alternate. Hellenist Hebrew, Hellenist Hebrew, Hellenist Hebrew. Whatever it takes. Then all of a sudden what happens when the pastors of the churches begin to have to do all those things and count the chairs and deal with the issues of all the needs of the church it is impossible to do two specific things. It is impossible to study the Bible with a pure heart and to pray. So therefore, the church is not instructed. The church is not prayed for. And he said, well, all of us pray. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm being very sincere. How many of you really do pray for every person by name in this congregation every single day? You can't do it. You know who can? I can I usually could do it from memory, but now I have to have a notes. <laughs> Why? Because I'm not called to do anything but. And so when I'm studying this text, all of you are in my heart. All of you are on my prayers. All of you are being asked. I'm asking our Father to make sure that what I'm about to teach, not only is it accurate and correct according to the text, but the application and the all of the other things are for your good and for your joy. Knowing that I'm just like you and I've been given a task that's beyond my ability. So the apostles, I mean the elders, uh, yeah, the apostles, they came over and they said, verse 2, they summoned the full number of the whole congregation and says, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. Why is it not right? It's not right for the church. See, preaching the word of God is not a power, it's not a position of authority in the context of like CEO or king or regent. 
It's a position of service that's necessary. It is the most necessary foundation. It is the brick and mortar bedrock of the church. The teaching of the word of God. The oversight of the church in the context of teaching. Imagine having to watch, catalog, and direct an anthill. Sometimes that's what ministry feels like. And you get down there, wait, 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 you're going out of line. And they bite you. <laughs> you bit my hand, I swell up, and I can't work. So here we go. Congregation, pick out from among you seven men who fit the qualifications of what Paul would later tell Timothy, of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wise. And then we'll appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen. Out of the seven who were qualified, they chose one. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then they chose another. Philip. And then they chose another. Prochorus. And Nicanor. And Timon. And Parmenius. And Nicholas. Why? Because there were thousands of people. And they needed seven deacons in office so that they could begin to administrate and organize the ministry by calling servant leaders out of the congregation to assist with this service. Just feeding people. And they set up before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. They ordained them. The office of elder and the office of deacon is an ordained position. It is a calling. It is something that rests with you. It's not a rotation. It's not a board member. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And you know what happens? You know what's the next part of this story? Don't know how long it took, but it wasn't long before Stephen, get this, in his service and humility, what happened to Stephen? Stephen gained a good standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. I'll preach the end of this sermon first. Because if you notice, it wasn't the elders of the churches who were martyred as much as it was the servants. Stephen, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, was full of grace and of power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now imagine that. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and to the Cyrenians and all of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia, Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not stand against the wisdom and against God the Spirit with which he was speaking. So what upset them about Stephen? They saw Stephen's 
stature in the community of faith, and they hated him for it. Just like the, bro the brothers of Joseph hated him for it. And everywhere you look in Scripture, because Stephen wasn't trying to be influential, he was a servant, and servants influence people. And so these theologians came around and they wanted to just knock a punch into Stephen who was serving. And Stephen surprised them. They thought he was just a dumb table waiter. He was a wise servant of Christ. And he answered them according to the scripture. Not according to his own arguments, philosophy. And then they secretly instigated others. Who? These people who could not stand against his wisdom. His wisdom could have very well been, you know what? Why don't you submit to the Lord and serve his church? Why aren't you praying about this? Why are you debating these things? Because you know it's not called of us. There's nowhere in the scripture that's called of us to do this. It's our hobbies. And God could care less about our hobbies when they interfere with his calling. So here, this first deacon, they couldn't stand it, so they stirred up other people. They stirred up the elders of Israel. They stirred up the scribes. And they came upon him, and they kidnapped him. They seized him. They arrested him and brought him before the council of Jerusalem. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. Now, see? Because what was Stephen doing? Serving Christ through the service of his people. And so it's very easy to say, okay, this man is not doing the things that Jews are supposed to be doing. He is speaking against them. What did he do? We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face, and that is recorded that it was a face, it was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these so? And then Stephen preaches. What does Stephen do? He does not do is answer his accusers. He does not say, I didn't say that. This is what I mean. This is how it is. This is the way I've done. We didn't do that. He didn't say that because we're not called to say that. Don't answer accusers. And the high priest said, are these things? And Stephen said, do I dare read it all? It's not necessary. Read it. It's not where we're at this morning. What does he do? He starts with Abraham. He goes through the history of Abraham all the way through to Moses, to Exodus, all of these things. And gets done. And then he starts to expressly talk about the prophecies of Christ. And how everything that Israel did was a picture of the coming of the Christ. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes the Lord by saying, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did I not make all these things? And then he turns to them and says, 
This is not prescriptive, beloved. This is what happened. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. <laughs> and then he shut up. And it said that they were enraged. Have you ever been so enraged that you gritted your teeth till your jaw hurt? It's a rare occasion. They were so enraged they gnashed their teeth and they covered their ears and they screamed. Think about that. A child of God, screaming, yelling, getting flamboyantly irritated, agitated, and saying that what they're doing is response to their offense of what God stands for. <laughs> and the gospel is stupid. No one who has ever lost their temper in the name of Christ is in the Spirit. Ever. And I would argue that they don't even understand it. And they reach out there, they grab him, they pick up stones, and one of the Sanhedrin is standing there, a young man by the name of Paul from Tarsus. Was, well, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. Paulos is his Greek name. Paul is his English name. Okay. Saulos. Saul. Okay. He didn't change his name. Just who he is. He used the Greek because he was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's, that's the point. <laughs> okay? And so, like if I was in France, I'd be Jacques. Okay? Let's just get that over with. Sorry. ADD. And they kill him. And Paul is standing there as a representative of the Sanhedrin. And he accepts their cloaks at his feet and ordains the stoning of Stephen against the law of Rome. And here's the apostle to the Gentiles. Killing Stephen. Murdering Stephen. Jesus says in John 13. Love one another. And your love for one another will show the world that you belong to me. John writes the same thing. 1 John 3. Verse 16 says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world, world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but let us love in deed and truth. That's the high office of the deacon. That's what Stephen was doing. That's what deacons are called to. And elders also in the attitude, different job. And you too, 
as a member of this family of faith, called to the same high standard. How do we know? Because the scripture teaches us that. So we see these verses here in 1 Timothy 3, 18 through 13, a simple little instruction. One, we see what's not there, and that is that deacons are not required to teach. They must hold to the faith, but they're not required to teach. And yes, there may be some overlaps. There may be some people who hold the office of deacon for a while and then feel called to the eldership. There may be some elders that feel called to be a deacon later. They change their role. But you must be called. And you must be qualified. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, not a drunk, not greedy. And they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they've got to be theologically sound. They've got to agree with what the elders of the church are putting forth. They've got to be unified in the gospel and know that the Bible is the final court of arbitration in all things related to the church. In every circumstance, the New Testament instruction to the church answers everything that's necessary. How do we handle this issue? How do we handle this person? How do we handle this disagreement? What do we do and how do we act? It is there for us and anyone who says otherwise is refusing Christ. So the character and the faith of a deacon must be unquestioned. The calling is to serve tangibly and actively. And let him also, verse 10, be tested first. Just like I said last week with elders. If a man is called to be an elder, he is already expressing and exposing a gift to teach. So the elders can allow a young man or an older man, someone who feels as though they have the gift of teaching, they can allow them to exercise that teaching with oversight. That's why we've had an elder in training or an elder candidate for five years. And some people think that's absurd. And the people who think that's absurd, there's one of two things at work. They just don't understand the Bible in its instruction about not being hasty. Or two, they think they're ready. Anybody thinks they're ready, ain't ready. The elders of the church and the church itself gets to look at a man's life and go, you know what? You don't think you're ready, but you're ready. You see the difference? The calling of the office of the elder is to tangibly and actively serve the church. The person who feels called to be a deacon is already serving as a servant. The person who's called to be an elder is already teaching and ministering in correction appropriately. Sometimes outside their authority and then the elders have to go, Whoa, you don't have a right, don't get involved in that. <laughs> well, they ask, well, you come to me. Simmer down now. Well, they keep aggravating me. Block them. Tell them, you bring them to me. They want to burn your phone up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Put them on silent, and we'll talk about it tomorrow, you see. Same thing with a servant. They must be serving. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And in verse 11, it brings in some stuff, and I want to talk about maybe... 
week after next where it says their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober minded, faithful in all things. Because in the same way that I am called as a pastor elder, my wife is equally called but not to serve in that role. But if she said there's no way that you're called to be a pastor, guess what? She's right. No body can take a call of God when their spouse says, don't think so. There is an agreement with the Spirit. Why? Because even in the minuscule of it, the household's not in unity. And here, when it comes to tangible service, beloved, the office of deacon, their wives are going to be actively involved in administrating the service to the church. Is that not the way it is? That's the way it is. And so what does he do? He says, listen, they can't be, they can't be busybodies. They can't be gossips. They've got to be reasonable and faithful. Sisters, wives, share in the calling to serve the church. Let the deacon be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. The same language there for the elders. Must be a one-woman man, devoted and dedicated. Has nothing to do with divorce and remarriage. It's not on the table in this context. I don't care about 50 billion pages of commentary. Context trumps grammar. Did you know that? Context trumps the definition of a word. Doesn't matter what the dictionary says. Dictionaries are created in a vacuum. Vernacular, contextual vernacular, how we speak and what we're talking about gives context. Context defines everything, especially in the Bible. And finally, we, we know, it says, and we've already dealt with it, we've already preached it. For those who serve well as deacons, verse 13 gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we must understand this. Everybody's not looking. We're not looking for assimilation. We're looking for intimacy. We're looking for tangible, real answers to real, tangible problems. Just before service, we're all opining about our pain. My elbow is in such pain right now, I could barely carry my Bible in it. My neck hurts. My stomach is killing me. My knee hurts. If I start thinking about it, I'm going to fall down. Because it's like, you know, because what you do when you're in chronic pain is you sort of just ignore it and you don't notice it. Sisters in pain, a couple of other sisters that are out here in pain. We need to pray for one another. And then, you know what? Sometimes when you're in pain physically, you can't even wash your clothes. So sometimes we might have to say, hey, there's a need for some clothes to be washed or there's a need for some grass to be cut or there might be some needs to just hang out and talk or get on the phone. We have needs. It's okay. We need to express our needs. We need to understand that being a church is like a big old family. All of our ugly and dirty and failing things are no opportunity for judgment and anybody that gives judgment, then the elders step in and say, no, no. Because if you want to be judged... If you want to judge somebody, then we're going to start looking at you. And we're going to look at your checkbook. And we're going to look at your television. And we're going to look at your phone. And we're going to look at your time management. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, then. Let's just love each other and be content. <laughs> you see? 
Oh, we're going to go 12 years back and see what you were doing on spring break in high school. No, we're not. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday or before you got here this morning. What matters is, is that we are all one body in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus shows in John 13, I believe it is, where he is walking into this supper. It's going to be the final supper. And he walks around and everybody's nasty. Their feet are filthy. They have to wash their feet. First century Hebrews, OCD. They have to wash their feet. Why? Because your feet is next to the food. You're kneeling down or Indian style or slanted or however, whatever you, where your bones are. They didn't have chairs. It wasn't really necessarily at a table. There was no slave there. And if there was a slave and he was a Hebrew, it was against the law for a Hebrew person to wash another person's feet. That's how menial the task was. But Jesus starts taking off his clothes. You ever been to somebody's house? They're serving you dinner and they start undressing? That's time to leave. That's a problem. So he puts a towel around his waist because he's naked. They didn't have undergarments and all these other things. It's not like Victorian centuries rolling down all these stockings and stuff, taking off cloth. No, he covers himself up for modesty's sake, and he gets down like the slave would, the Gentile slave, and he begins to wash the feet. Peter's like, there ain't no way I'm letting my Lord and Master and Teacher wash my feet. Not going to happen. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no place with me. If I don't wash you completely, you have no place with me. And so what does Peter do? Then wash my whole body then, Lord. <laughs> Bathe me. Didn't get it, see. But he did get it, eventually, when it was revealed to him. So here's Jesus, the God of the universe, doing that which even a Hebrew slave was not permitted to do. And he washed the feet of every man there, even the son of perdition. And then he says to them, and this is where a lot of folks think this is a commandment to wash feet. <laughs> it's a narrative. It's not prescriptive. The prescription is love one another as I'm loving. So if you wash feet in your house before you eat, then by all means, serve in that way. However it is that we can serve one another and show our service to them and our love to them, Jesus Christ did that. We also should do that. That's where the elders and the deacons of a church work together to see that the church is taken care of, not only in food for the soul and instruction for life, but in needs and love because it is the picture of Christ. And beloved, in this year, we will be, Lord willing, and with you in agreement, appointing and ordaining another elder and our first deacon. It is something that we must do. Because when the church is in order and the offices are fulfilled, we become a people that truly displays the love of Christ. And it's not going to stave off complaints. It's not going to stave off divisions. These are must-haves. They will happen. But it does stave off the continued derailment of the ministry. We can't help the pandemic. It just happened. 
But beloved, if the offices are operating as they should and the church is growing, the church, even when it's separated, is together. Just like when Christ died for us, nothing can separate us from him. He is the greatest elder. He is the greatest husband. He is the true husband. He is the true servant. He is the true Lord. He is the true lamb. He is the God of all things, and he is the savior of his people. And that's why we're here today, because we believe that, because God has granted us faith to trust in him. So let's live this out by faith. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship and to listen to your word. And Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of many sins and attitudes, Lord, that you equip me to just stand up here week after week and to explain and to understand what we need as a body. Father, I pray for our church that we would grow into your likeness in our hearts and love for one another in our community, Lord, that we that you would help just erase any fear of judgment from anyone among us, Lord, that we could be passionate and compassionate and tender and thankful. That you've loved us so that we might love one another. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you.